Aloha and welcome to the Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe. Hope Chapel exists to grow ordinary people into faithful, productive followers of Jesus Christ, equipping them through Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Today, Pastor Ralph begins a message entitled, God in Us. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. As, as we get started, I, I, I want to come back to something that, that the text doesn't really deal with directly today. But it's a, it, it underpins everything, and it's the reason that we're spending uh, as much time as we are in Ephesians. I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm having fun going slow through the Bible. Instead of just skating over the top of things, uh, we're going a little deeper. We're learning a little bit more. And, and I want to talk to you today about, uh, there, there are several descriptions of what it means to be a Christian. What God thinks of you as we look through the text. That's really what it says. But as, as we get into it, I want to start out by, I, I want to I draw two comparisons. And I want to kind of, I want to use this idea of the, this term worldview. My, what, my worldview is my way of looking at everything around me. The universe, uh, my neighborhood, my, my kids, my, my parents, my money, uh, the Lord, prayer, everything. All comes down to each of us has a worldview. And each of us has a little different worldview than, than the other. But it, in our society, there's a predominant worldview. And the predominant worldview, which is, is mostly foisted upon us by the media in some ways government, in every way possible by the education establishment, is a worldview that says, way over here, we live in a purely material universe. In other words, what you see is what you get. And there is no such thing as spiritual reality. And everything that exists uh, came into being of its own. Now that's the extreme view. Now it's, it gets mollified a little bit in a view that says, but maybe there is a God because science, basically all the sciences but biology are now saying this. They've come back to what, what pr- probably Thomas Jefferson believed, deism. There, there is a mind behind the universe. There's a God who wound up, who created the watch and wound it up, but he stepped aside and let it just, you know, keep ticking. And, and, and so that's the extreme of that, that there, there's, there's either very little or there's no such thing as spiritual reality. Okay? So if you were to do something like pray about the weather, you would, that would just be an exercise in futility. Or if you were to pray about someone's tumor, that would be an exercise in futility. If you went to the total other extreme, if you went to the highlands of New Guinea, where people not that long ago have been collecting each other's heads, you, you would find people who believed in that everything that happens in the universe around them is caused by a spirit. And they would dif- differentiate between good spirits and evil spirits. And they would be doing whatever they could to pacify the evil spirits. If, if there was a, a, a lightning struck and it burned a village, then they would think that an evil spirit caused the village to burn and they would go and offer some sacrifice, in some cases in the past, human sacrifice to whatever spirit was controlling the weather, whatever, whatever, whatever. And they would see everything as having spirit causes. Now, if you were amongst that group and you were to say that we prayed about the weather, then they would immediately respond positively and think, yeah, that's a valid thing to do. Now, here's what I want to say, is both extremes are wrong. Both extremes are wrong. There are spiritual realities. But let's just talk about weather for a second. Do you believe 
that God can, can change the weather? How many do? Okay. Do you believe that every weather event is caused by God or by a spirit of some sort? No, none of us do. None of us do. Now, watch this. Let's come back toward the middle, toward a position of balance. We who have come from the Western worldview, the materialistic worldview, we believe in God. We believe in prayer. We believe in, in, in spiritual realities. We believe that God can intervene in the, in the material world that he has made. You agree so far? What do we call those interventions? Miracles. Miracles. Now, this is what I'm going for. I would like to erase the word miracle from your vocabulary. Now, you might still use it with your mouth, but I'd like to get it out of your brain. Because I believe this. We come to the Bible and we struggle, even though we see God answer prayer, we struggle with this whole baggage of materialistic view of the world that we have. And so what we believe is that God is nine million miles away, that we have this thing that, that works sometimes called prayer, and once in a while you get an answer and you know that there's no naturalistic explanation for it, and so you deem it a miracle, but you see it as a fairly random thing. And so prayer becomes much like playing spiritual roulette. Once in a while, the little white ball falls in the slot and I win. Other times it doesn't. And so our expectations of God are very low. And it's all colored by our materialistic view of the universe, that what we can see is more real than what we can't see. Now, this person who came from over here, when you come to him and you talk to him, he gets converted. He gives his life to the Lord. And now you start to talk to him about prayer and whatever. If, see, we're at different places on the spectrum. And probably nobody's right in the middle where balance really is. But this person over here is not going to have a difficulty at all embracing prayer and expecting supernatural things to happen because he prayed. Because his worldview was so oriented toward the spirit world that when he encounters the reality of the scripture, it's, it's an easy thing. This is why you will see people... Uh, operate in, in places where spiritism has dominated and go and preach the gospel and fantastic miracles will take place and then they come back to America and they preach the same message and not very much happens and they're frustrated and, uh, and, and, and then we look at it and we sort of kind of have a little snicker and we go, ah, it's, it's, probably, it's just superstition. It's probably not really even happening over there. It's just, you know, they all, they're all more given to that stuff. But when you talk to really credible people, if you're a smart person, who likes to read difficult books. Um, and this one will be easy for you. If you don't like to read at all, this book would be difficult for you. But there's a book that we have back there called Christianity with Power. And there's another book by the same author called Confronting Powerless Christianity. The guy's name is Charles Kraft. He's a cultural anthropologist who used to be a missionary in Nigeria. And he was frustrated with the fact that he as a Westerner went into this kind of a society and he was seeing People believe in the miraculous and experience the miraculous. He was preaching the same gospel, but none of it was happening in his life. So here's the deal. If we could get to a place where we begin to recognize that we do live in a spiritually controlled universe, that the material comes from the spiritual, and that God is on the throne, and that God is God, and God has not disassociated himself with us. The problem isn't him, it's us. Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. The Bible talks about the mystery of godliness. If we could get to a place where 
where, where coming to church was more than just coming through a routine, but it was coming anticipating an interaction with God that's going to change my life. That praying together with other believers. And there's a lot of us that are, I mean, we're seeing some very powerful miracles, some healings, uh, some, some uh, what you'd have to call demonic deliverances, some people who've been made well of things that just, that were, that were killing them by reason of habits that they had. And then, boom, somebody prays and it's, it's all over. There's no other explanation other than that God answered that prayer. And so I'd like you to get to the place that you didn't have to use the word miracle because it began to be seen in your, in your mind anyway, even you, though you might use the word because we all speak English, right? But in your brain, you, that began to be not, and here's the problem with the word miracle. We see it as an exception rather than as a norm. And I want to get us to a place where we're, where we're expecting God to act like God every day of the week. Am I getting anywhere with you? Now that's underlying the whole reason why I'm going through the book of Ephesians, and we're taking time with it because it says some very profound and wondrous things. Today, as we look at it, 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 it just kind of lines us all up with how does God see us and how does God see this thing that we call church? And, and there's about eight or nine different descriptive words that God uses and applies them to you through the scripture. And as we get these words down and we begin to get a different identity, a different sense of who I am. See, there's some of you that come here and you feel in, incredibly like an outsider. You're thinking, I'm, I'm here with all these relatively good people, and I'm a real slug. And if they knew it, they'd probably escort me right out the back door right now. And there's some of you that have been coming here so long, and you've been putting the front on so long, and every time I pray at the end of a service for people to accept the Lord, you're desperate to pray the prayer, but you're embarrassed to pray it because you think, oh, I'll lose face if I pray it. And you need to understand, God just loves you. And if you need to pray a prayer of surrender over again, pray it. Doesn't matter. But God loves you right where you're at. God loved Patience when she was in that bar that night. That's why he, he made Ron call Rob. And that's why when they prayed, Ron basically accepted the Lord. And two seconds later, his wife calls on the phone and she's ready. Because God loves you the way you are, not the way you're supposed to be. Now, he'll love you the way you're supposed to be, too. But uh, he, he, he starts out loving you the way you are. So let's just get into this and talk about this a minute. You are a member of God's family, according to Scripture. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2 says, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Now, just the background here. Ephesians was written to a bunch of Christians. See, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? Jesus was a Jew. And Christianity started amongst Jews in Jerusalem. And for a little while, they carried the racism that was extant in, in Judaism at the time into the church. And you weren't fully a Christian if you weren't a Jew. And so they would actually, the book, Acts chapter 15 deals with this. They expected you to convert to Judaism, go through all the rituals like circumcision, Get into the whole Old Testament law. Then you can accept Jesus as your Savior by faith and be forgiven of your sins. Nonsensical. And Paul is trying to work against that. But now he's talking to a bunch of Christians who are non-Jews. They're Gentiles. And they're probably like us. All, all flavors of people. A rainbow church. Because the Mediterranean world is, is a world that, that people come in all sizes, shapes, and colors. And, and, and so Paul is writing and saying, you guys aren't outsiders. You've been made to feel like outsiders. You're not outsiders. You once were, but because of other reasons than your race. It was a spiritual thing. You didn't know God. 
But now you know God, you're not an outsider. And I, I'm here just to tell all of us, we were all outsiders to the family of God. And then we came to know the Lord and, and he started working change in our, first our outlook and then our lifestyle and, and whatever. Now, so now, you, you know, wherever you are at in maturity, you know, if you go look at a, at a, at a coconut tree, uh, you almost always see the, those little blossoms in the blossom stalk. And then you see little tiny miniature coconuts. And if the tree is left to just do its thing and they don't trim it all the time, you're going to see mature coconuts in, on the same tree as blossoms and on the same tree as little tiny coconuts. And what, you've, what you have is the full range of growth. And that's what you have in this church is, is we're all at some different level of, of growth in our life. And so some of us are comparing ourselves. That person is very mature spiritually. I'm very immature spiritually. I feel bad about myself. No, 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 no. You're all members of the family. Families have babies. It's okay. So he says here, you're no longer outsiders. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens. I like this idea of citizens. You've, you, you, you become a, a member of God's kingdom, along with all of God's holy people. Now, the word holy simply means people who are set apart for God. It doesn't have anything to do with your behavior. It has to do with, I've made a choice. I have, I have deemed the Lord to be the Lord of my life. And I have transferred allegiance from the camp of Satan where I thought I was running the show and he really was over to where I want the Lord to run the show and he really does. And good things happen as a result. And, and so you become holy by virtue of ownership. See this little clicker in my hand? This thing is set aside. It runs the video and it's set aside for Jeff and I to use on Sunday. So don't touch it. It's ours. It belongs to us. So, so I, could, I could very easily and righteously say, this thing is holy unto me and holy unto Jeff. That's all the word means. You belong to the Lord. It's an ownership deal. It says you are members of God's family. Now, when you start to be members of God's family, the early Christians who got it and realized there was the racism didn't count for anything actually called themselves the third race. In other words, We've all been united into one. Well, now we know there's a lot of races out there, so maybe we're the 185th race. But what we are is, we are spiritual people who are called little Christ. We are Christians, and there is no distinction between us. I grew up in a church that had, I came from a very middle-class family. My dad was a machinist, you know, a blue-collar family, uh, had a good life, wonderful family, lived well. I went to church, in a church that had uh, some extremely wealthy people in it. And there was, a, there was a heavy sense of class consciousness in that church. And it was always odd to me as a little kid growing up. And, and it, later, I, I, I just saw it as rank hypocrisy. But as, as I remember, the church got together and they had a busing program. They would go into the poor neighborhoods of, of Portland, Oregon, and they had Sunday school buses, and they'd bring children into church, which is a very good thing to do. But the poor kids were poor kids. And often, the wealthier people looked down on them. And it was kind of screwy to me because the wealthier people are putting up the bucks to run the bus program and then looking down on the very people that they're bringing in and I, I just couldn't get it. And I remember one day the lady that ran our children's church, the lady who would be like Lori Higa is to us. I remember hearing her say, I was about 13 years old and this ticked me off to no end. I'm still not sure I'm over it. Um, <laughs> and I heard her looking at some kid that came to church in some kind of tired looking Levi's and some very worn over tennis shoes. And this was the 50s, right? The Leave it to Beaver days. When all of us, little kids, whoever, however rich or poor you were, you're expected to go to church in a little suit and tie, right? And so you get your little suit and tie on, and you're, and you're hearing this lady say, what's wrong with these bus kids? 
Don't they know to dress right when they come to God's house? And boy, I wanted to stuff a tennis shoe right down her mouth because it wasn't, it didn't take anything to understand this is the only shoes that kid owns. And what in the world are you doing running a children's church that's supposed to minister to this kid while you're looking down your snooty nose at this kid? You do not understand the family of God and you don't get church. And I was 13 years old and had never read the book of Acts. But I understood she didn't get it. Folks, this is all about being God's family. It's all about being citizens of his kingdom. It's all about being an insider, not being an outsider, no matter who you are, what's wrong with you. It's not about this building. It's not about this campus. It's not about some, some organizational structure. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God and other people. And when we get that down, we start to get what God is up to and trying to do in our lives. We read Ephesians 2, 6 a couple of weeks ago. It said, if you are in Christ, you're currently seated with him in the heavenlies. There's something mystical that has happened. You have a position in God that something's happened inside your soul and it's related you to him. It's also related you to these other people and everything in our society wars against that belief. But when you begin to enter in and taste of the things of the Spirit, you start to see God answering your prayers. You start to experience the love of somebody when you don't deserve to be loved because of that they love God, they now love you. And that love begins to pour into your life and it, and it starts to overwhelm you. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to enter into the mystery of godliness. You're starting to get a hold of that there has to be mystery about this thing called church. God, God is doing something, and, it's, and it goes way beyond religious form. Well, let's move on here. The next part of the scripture says, we are God's house. Verse 20 says, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. First Peter says, you are like living stones being built together into a house where God dwells. Each of us is like a brick in the house of God or a block or a piece of sandstone or something. And the mortar that holds us together is love. The Lord said, love the Lord with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's when you begin to love that you start to enter into everything. You know, I, I, I think about this with me. God wants to place us into a family of believers. And, and, and if, if so, what he asks of us is that we love each other. If you really love somebody, you're just inviting all kinds of pain into your life. And it's very easy to say, you know, a young guy say, I love you to some babe. And, and what he's really saying is, I lust you. And that's okay. God made us that way. He, he made us lust on the way to love. See, I don't know that I ever was mature enough to love my wife until I saw her in pain having a child. That, that did something to me, changed me. Love invites pain into your life. And, and, and that pain will bring you to know prayer and that prayer will bring you to know the power of God. I, I get, I, you know, the TV evangelist deal, all this, oh, it's the power. You know, yeah, no, no, no. That's power, godly power, unlinked from love is nothing. It's nonsense. But see, if, if, God, if God has power and he cares and he loves, then he's going to answer our prayers that are born of the pain of love. Something's wrong in your life, it hurts me, so I pray and I pray desperately, and, 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 and at some point, I move into the power of God, and, and, and the, the power of prayer comes through the pain of love. Am I making sense? Well, 
how we're talking about this, and just go back over the scripture again. It says, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Now, there's a picture on the screen behind me, and uh, it's of, what's that? Can anybody tell me? Yankee Stadium in New York. Yankee Stadium is the house that, that Ruth built. George Herman Ruth, Babe Ruth, hit more home runs than anybody. Uh, the, 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 the classic irony of, of the East Coast is the fact that the Boston Red Sox had Babe Ruth and they sold him to the Yankees. And, and ever since, they've been losing out in this rivalry for what, the last 60 years. And, and so Yankee Stadium is the house that Ruth built. But when you think of Yankee Stadium, if you're a baseball fan, you think of Lou Gehrig. We have a, a disease name for him, the wasting disease that took away this promising partner of Babe Ruth, the same way that Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris were partners in the year that both of them broke Babe Ruth's home run record. When you think of Yankee Stadium and the New York Yankees and their heritage, you think of Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, who, who had a way of coming through in the clutch and pounding a home run at, at the time when the Yankees were going to miss the series or were going to lose the series. And they, and, and they were winning World Series with, with this man uh, up there just taking cuts at that baseball like nobody would believe. By the way, Reggie Jackson, who's about the fifth all-time high home run hitter, but he's got all the, the World Series and playoff home run records that there are, is also the strikeout king of all, all time. Mickey Mantle would have had to play 15 more years to strike out as often as, as, as Reggie Jackson struck out. And here's the deal. You don't hit home runs if you don't strike out. And you want to try to learn to, to, to do the works of God? If you don't pray and sometimes have your prayers not answered, you're not going to be praying having your prayers answered. If you don't have some stupid thing to happen that you ate the wrong thing before you went to bed and you woke up in the morning having some message on your mind thinking this must be from God and you go and share it with somebody and I'm hoping you'll do it graciously by saying, you know, I just had this thought, I wonder if it means anything to you and they go, no. Uh, if you don't have a few of those, you're never going to be in the position when God really does speak to you and love motivates you to go to somebody and say, you know, I felt like this came to me, is this meaningful to you? And they go, yes. You know, I was in a meeting the other day and it was just an incredible thing. There's a, there's a guy from, from Boston. I love the way these guys talk, you know. And they got this edge to everything they say. And, and uh, we were with a bunch of pastors. And we were in this, this real heavy session all day Thursday. And then we had half day on Friday. And each day they invited a different pastor to give, give, do devotions. You know, preach a little sermon in the morning. Well, that's a really nasty thing to do to somebody, you know. You got to go to your own peers. And they all could probably do it better than you. And, and this guy... What, he got out of it. The, the second morning we were there, there was a guy who was hurting. We were praying for him. Pastor Hayford was late getting there. He got in into the prayer time, and then he just he talks a lot, so he just took off. And we we had the meeting, and we never had the devotions. And so my friend John Hatcher is thinking I got out of the devotions. And all of a sudden we came to a tough spot in the meeting, and we were talking about issues that were just intractable. And Hatcher opens up, and he goes. I, I can't, I wish I could imitate him. I can do Boston accents sometimes, but I, I'm a little tired today. But he starts going, 
I just thought this was a filthy joke. Somebody called me on the phone and told me I had to do devotions at this meeting. And he says, literally, honestly, I thought somebody was just playing a dirty, rotten joke on me. And I didn't think I was being asked to do, to do devotions. And then I got an email about it. And I realized I really was. And then he says, I dodged the bullet this morning because Pastor Jack came in and interrupted the whole thing. And I didn't have to do devotions. He says, but now I know the Holy Spirit won't let me go. Here's the scripture text I had prepared for the devotion this morning. And he unwinds with this baby. And I'm telling you, it was like a knife just cut right through the issue that we were talking about. And, and something that he had prepared a week before that he was supposed to say in the morning, he didn't get to say. Now we get at a crucial, difficult time in the meeting and he's going, oh, 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 oh my heart's pounding like crazy. God wants me to say this right now. And all he did was read the scripture and it was like the roof blew off the place. Uh, we had the answer we needed. It was the coolest thing you ever saw. That's like hitting a home run. That's never gonna happen. If there aren't some times that you feel I'm supposed to go give somebody some money and it turns out they didn't need it, or I'm supposed to go and, and, and share something with somebody, and you're gonna hit, you're gonna strike out a few times. But you know what? If we're all family, it's okay to strike out. Does that make sense? You've been listening to the Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. 